we're going to finish up with what Sarah was doing, <clears throat> or, you know, that little interaction where Sarah's involved, and then we'll get into the negotiation part. So we're in Genesis 18. We're starting in verse 15. I know we kind of spilled over a little bit and talked about this and that, but let's do it official. How about we start on this side? Philip, Genesis 18, 15. A good year. <laughs> yeah. Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, for you did laugh. <laughs> yeah, very simple. No, you did laugh. Now let's go back. Let's get our, get our heads in the game, right? Back in verse 13, <clears throat> the Lord said to Abraham, okay, who's where? We've got Abraham and the three men or whatever, right? They're out under a tree outside the tent, and we've got Sarah back in the tent, eavesdropping, right? The Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And then two verses later, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Did she come out of the tent? I didn't laugh. No, you did laugh. Did she do that? That would be super weird, right? It, did she stay in the tent? Who was she talking to? And where was he that he could answer, right? It's a weird little image right there, right? But uh, he answers back. Was he in the tent? That's, I mean, you know, we already talked about that. Why would she deny it? Why would she say, I didn't laugh? Because she's old? How does that work? Well, being old, you get by with a lot of <laughs> Senior discount. That's right. Yeah. What else? What? Why? Why would she deny it? Well, it says she laughed to herself. Maybe she thought that wouldn't really laugh. If that's, that's right. Yeah. She didn't laugh out loud. I didn't laugh, right? But it's highlighting what? What did we talk about last week? God sees and knows and hears everything, right? I didn't laugh, right? It makes her sound like that is the most ridiculous denial ever. A kid standing there with chocolate chip all over his lips. I didn't have a cookie, right? But she laughed to herself. Do they know that God sees and hears and knows all, even to the most inner stuff, right? This is teaching us that. It's a great lesson. Uh, she probably feels a little more exposed and vulnerable than she ever has before. And in a lot of ways, it's just like in the garden, right? What did they do? Did you eat from the tree? She made me do it. <laughs> well, did you eat from it? No, the snake tricked me, right? It's, it's that same human behavior. And if we're honest, you know we're doing that all the time in little ways. Probably not as blatant as this because, I mean, it's hard to, to, 
rationalize in your brain that, no, I, I, no, I'm honest, I'm, you know, whatever. But there's all these little things. There's just that little opportunity when you, well, I could have looked a little silly or stupid in that moment, but it seems as though no one noticed. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let that go on by. I'm not going to take credit for my stupidity. Or you know what I'm saying? Just little things. We know it's all there. God wants the truth to be clear. So he states it, no, but you did laugh. And, you know, you got to wonder, is this really a scolding? Is, is, is that what we're supposed to be seeing here, that God is kind of scolding Sarah for uh, lying, basically, denying something that is, in fact, true? Or is it really, the, the point of the text, is it really just about, look, God sees and hears and knows everything. What was the word you used, Terry? Saying it was more like correction. Correction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't know what the real point of the text is, but there's certainly a lot more value for the reader if it's something to do with God's ability to see and hear and know everything and you can't hide anything from Him, then, yeah, Sarah's kind of getting her nose slapped. I mean, it's important. I could get my nose slapped. That's a good lesson. But the bigger one is probably God sees and hears and knows all. So Isaac, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Okay. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but just like that, who are these three people again? Men. I mean, we've been talking so much about this. It, first, it's men, and then you kind of get the sense that, okay, wait a second, these aren't ordinary men, and you start thinking angels and whatever, and then one of them, they start acting like he's just God. The Lord is saying, and, you know, all of this. And we talked about that little weirdness of, you know, the Lord said, is there anything too hard for the Lord, right? Is there anything too hard for the Paul, right? We did that. It's weird. And so... All of a sudden, they're just men again. Now, I'm sure they're not like visibly changing in this whole story. If this is a, a real event that's happening right there here on earth with Abraham and Sarah, I mean, they're staying basically the same form and figure, I'm guessing, through the whole story. But for whatever reason, the writer, the way the story is being told, they take us back to, and they're men. It's just, it's weird. It's weird. So, uh, they begin to leave Abraham's place, Abraham's place, and as they're leaving, they look down toward Sodom. Now, I don't know if there's any particular reason they said down toward Sodom. Was it really lower in elevation? Was it really to the south? You know, it, it, it was to the south. It's like south and east a little bit, right, from where they were. Um, but another thing in your Bible, and we do this all the time, where's heaven? Up. Where's hell? Down, right? We, we do that. That's in your Bible. All that up-down stuff. You, you're always going up to Jerusalem. No matter where you are in the world, you go up to Jerusalem because it's God's mountain, right? That's the, the name. So they're going down to Sodom. So there might be a sort of a metaphorical bit in there, right? Abraham accompanies them. And this is just another example of him completing that hospitality, right? Um, well, we have no clue what's really involved in the phrase, set them on their way. 
but given Abram's earlier behavior, you know, he's probably a busy bee doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, remember, he may have just been circumcised yesterday or within a couple of days ago, or it could have been weeks or months. We don't know, but Jewish tradition says it was yesterday, right? <laughs> it's just, that's a crazy picture. True or false, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a neat picture. Uh, but anyway, he's going to set them on their way. So, John, you get the long one, 17, 18, and 19. Glad you brought water this morning. <clears throat> and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Okay, there's another one. The Lord said, blah, 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 so that the Lord may bring. <clears throat> That's just weird. People don't talk like that, right? So it's just another additional point of the confusion in this story. But you've got to picture this. Everything that John just read, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? And then he says all of this stuff, whatever. Okay. The modern joke would be Abraham going, guys, I'm right here. Right? They're talking about him. Shall I hide this from Abraham? And Abraham's going, hey, I'm not invisible. Okay. So you got to wonder are they, are they talking out loud? I mean, you would think they were, right? I mean, it, why would they... I mean, they're heavenly beings. Maybe they can communicate a different way, right? We could say that. But why are they talking in this manner? And then, listen to what he says. The question is, shall I hide what I'm about to do? Okay? That's the question. But then, he's not really waiting for an answer. He's actually offering reasons why he should not hide it. So it's more like a rhetorical question, okay, for whoever's listening. But listen to what he says. Should I hide it? And it's kind of like, I don't think that I should. Here are my reasons why. He's going to become a great and mighty nation. Now, why is he going to become a great and mighty nation? Because God promised it and he's going to make it happen, right? That's weird. Why should I hide this from him? Because I'm doing stuff in him, right? That's really what it comes down to. What's his other reason? All the nations will be blessed in him. How's that going to come to pass? God promised it. He's the one that's going to do it, right? God has chosen him. Now, I mean, it's kind of a stretch to call that a promise, but you get the idea. It's, it's still connected to, wait a second. A lot of this it doesn't feel like it has anything to do with Abraham. It's more like what God has chosen to do through this one man, Abraham, right? Should I hide it from him? God is saying, no, I don't think I should because... I picked him. I'm doing all this work in him and through him, right? It's an interesting argument, right? 
now, here's another one, though. Why did God choose him? This is really good. So that he would command his offspring or his household to keep God's ways. What's our phrase for keeping God's ways, following his commands? Imaging him, obedience. Yeah, we're imaging God. The very thing we we're created to do that we all fail at so miserably, right? It's not the inherent, I'm human, therefore I'm in the image of God. It's the, oh, no, 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 I'm imaging God. You can actually see him in and through me, right? So that's, a, that's why he chose him, so that he would command them to image God, pass this stuff down. He chose him so that he and they, his offspring, would do righteousness and justice, keep his ways. It's kind of the the same thing. What does he say here? Uh, Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's my version, right? ESV. So that's why he's chosen him. And he also chose him so that God could deliver what he promised. And it's kind, of a, it's kind of a conditional thing that I may bring to Abraham what I have promised or what he has promised. He's talking in third person, right? And so this goes back to the covenant. Did Abraham have a role, a part? What was his part of the covenant? Does anybody remember? Walk before me and be blameless, right? That's pretty much the same thing as keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, right? It's all the same thing. And so you hear a little bit, it's like, man, just that reminder, you know, there's like a conditional nature to this. Abraham needs to meet some sort of standard for all of this to come to pass. The beauty is we know that he does, and we can look at his life and we can poke holes, right? But he apparently makes it over that bar, even if it's just, just enough. You ever see somebody doing the high jump? <laughs> it's always amazing to me that they do not touch that bar. <laughs> they are, they're just skimming over the top. But, you know, it's like that. So it kind of gets a little circular at the end. I get it. But taken all together, it seems that what's being said is this. Shall I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham, seeing how... I've chosen him to be the conduit through which I fix all of creation. That's really God's argument here, right? Shall I hide it? So his answer is no. What are the other two men or angels or whatever? What are they doing? What you said, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right? What's Abraham doing, right? Uh, Yeah, I think you should tell me. I'm nosy, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? So it's, it's just, again, it's another, if you're just slowing down and looking, what's really happening in this story? There's a lot of weird stuff. So verses 20 and 21, Brandon. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Okay. Now we just got to the good part, right? So, certainly, certainly by this time, this is out loud. I mean, no matter what you think of the one before, this has got to be out loud, right? And we'll, we'll see in a second why. 
Abraham can hear this. So, so the outcry is great. What do you think of when you hear that word? It's great. What was that? Oh, I see. Yeah, the, the prayers, I see. How about the word great? What do you think of? Well, you, you could turn around and think about there in Egypt. There's an outcry for some slavery and everything. In Egypt, there's an outcry. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of when you hear the word great? Synonym, another English word, anything. Overwhelming. Unavoidable. Unavoidable. Yeah. Yeah. Numerous is the word behind this. The outcry is numerous. I'm, God is hearing it, and we talked about outcry, prayers, whatever. It's, it's coming from everywhere. There's a lot of it, right? I just thought that was kind of interesting because it's not the way I would normally translate that word. And their sin is very grave. Now, what do you think of when you hear that? Serious. Serious? Yeah. The word behind it is more like heavy and burdensome. Now, again, it doesn't make the other words you guys are talking about wrong at all. We're just highlighting what's really being said here. It's heavy and burdensome. Here's the question. Is it heavy and burdensome on the people sinning? Or is it heavy and burdensome on those they're sinning against? This is a really good question because what do you think? What's the one sin that we think of when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah? Why did God destroy them? Yeah, sexual immorality, anything like that of any kind, right? That's what we think of. But interestingly, your scriptures don't think that. And a whole bunch of tradition outside of the scriptures don't think that either. It's very weird. The thing, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but just kind of go with me for a second. The number one sin, according to tradition, in Sodom and Gomorrah was hospitality. What? How can that be a big deal? right? But take that out a little bit. What are they talking about? There are people who need food, clothing, shelter, etc., stuff like that. And Sodom has the ability to meet those needs and they refuse to do it. That, according to tradition, is worse than even the sexual immorality that we see in the story, right? True or false? Is that the way it was God meant it? Is that what, I don't know, but that's a really interesting thing that's going on here. Your, their, their sin was heavy and burdensome, right? If you think about it being on other people, and then you think about the disadvantaged, the poor, whatever, and them not helping, you could see how that might work out, right? It's just an interesting way to look. Um, let's see. This is just like Babel. Okay, let's go back, look at the text. Verse 21, what did it say, Brandon? The first few words? That I will go down and see. There you go. I will go down and see. Just like Babel. 
What did he do? I'm, I'm going to go down there and see what's going on. Does God need to go anywhere to see anything? No. He doesn't. And yet he's doing it. Why? To relate to man. To relate to man? Yeah. What else? Remove doubt as to why he has the right to give judgment. Yeah, that's good. Very good. Anybody else? Yeah, he is just like at Babel. He's demonstrating. What attribute or character of God are we seeing right here that we should be imitating? Do not take word for anything. You go see for yourself before you make any sort of judgment. Right? And we talked about it back then. Man, it could be somebody that you trust implicitly. I mean, maybe I think Philip is not going to color anything. He's going to give me black and white facts. He saw it with his own eyes. I can trust Philip. That can all be true. But what's God saying? Go see for yourself anyway. That's what he's demonstrating here. Twice now. He's demonstrated that. How important do you think that is? That not only is God saying you should or shouldn't do something, wait, He is demonstrating it Himself in the stories. You need to stop taking people's word for stuff. And you need to go check things out for yourself before you make any sort of judgment. How hard would it be to live like that? Hmm? Because we take people's word, people we trust, and when they've proven you can't trust them, we don't take their word anymore. That's a good thing. But God, man, he moved that bar <laughs> way up there. You go check it out. You make sure, right? It's kind of cool and kind of scary. Uh it, this uh, also points out, notice it again, that it's God coming down. We talked about this theme through the scriptures, that it is only God who comes down, right? It's that, that picture of there is none like him. He is the only one that can lower himself from heaven. Do angels come to earth from heaven or whatever? Yes, but they're not lowering themselves, right? Right? It's, it's a different thing. So God is the only one that comes down. So when you get to John chapter 6 and they have this big brouhaha and everybody thinks it's because he said to eat flesh and drink blood, it's not. It's because he said he came down. Only God does that. He's claiming to be God, right? So you see that here. Uh, and then also notice this. I think this is so amazing. I'm going to go down just to see whether or not this is really as bad as I'm being told. And if not, I'll know. He's looking for it to not be true. He's heard all of this stuff, and when he goes to check it out for himself, he starts with the attitude, really hoping it's not true. I'm going to go down there, and if it's not true, I'll be able to find that out. He's looking for an optimistic outcome, right? So there's another one. You go start checking things out for yourself. Don't walk in there going, man, 
I heard what's going on here and I'm going to see. Yep, I see it, you loser, blah, blah, blah. I see all this stuff. You need to go in kind of with that optimistic, hopeful thing of, man, I hope this ain't true. I'm going to look for any opportunity for this to not be true, not as bad as they say. But then if it is, you make the right judgment, right? Righteous judgment. So that's amazing. Okay, so who is crying out? Is it the sin? I mean, is there somebody praying? Is it Abraham? Because he knows, you know, the people. Is it that all the, because I always feared they were all evil. I, you know, could not find any righteous. So in Sodom, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the crying out? The sins themselves are crying out mm. to God too, or, or what do you who's think? Going to crying. What do you really think? Just if you had to guess, what do you, who you think's crying out? Well, Abraham for one, I think. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he loves people. Yeah, and. Uh, God, God's crying out for his people too. But, yeah, yeah, uh, that's good. It's good. Who else? Who do you think's crying out? It's a really good question. If they're all evil. I mean, you know, when evil's in evil, why are they crying out? They're having fun. They're, you know, yeah. doing what they want to do. Y- you just said it. Yeah, that's a really good point. If all of the sin was sexual sin, who's crying out? Because to some degree, you're thinking, well, they're all participating in it. I mean, you kind of assume they're liking it or something, right? But if the number one sin was uh, not helping others, there had to be somebody that was hurting because of what they did. Yeah. Now you're understanding where Jewish thinking is going, how they got to where they got, right? Who's doing the crying out, right? Now, with sexual sin, can you not have victims? Even if you're participating. You know, we, we know my, my favorite passage, Galatians 5.1, even when you're sinning, you are enslaved. Yeah. Sinning's really fun, but it's also, that's what puts the chains around you. Right. To borrow an illustration. So yeah. I think even, I think it's a collection of outcry, mm-hmm. but even those who were presumably enjoying the sin they would be crying out too. They are still enslaved by their own sin. Yeah, yeah. Very well could be. So you could have sexual victims, right? I mean, we see all that stuff today. Do you think it was better in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So there were probably victims there. But to Mike's point, if if that tradition has any value at all, if there's any truth to it at all, you've got people all around Sodom who, for whatever reason, are crying out. Now, here's the thing. In this time, in this place, how did you get by? How did you get along, right? Mostly, it was kind of agricultural, if we think in terms of animals and crops, okay? And it required big families to do that stuff, right? And a lot of times, people would gather in They called them cities. We would think of them as just little towns now, right? But if you didn't have family, maybe you are a widow or maybe, right? You start thinking of all the different ways you didn't really have that support structure. What do you do? I mean, it's really hard to just make it on your own. 
And so there were lots of people hanging around lots of little cities or towns that they survived just by being around other people who had stuff, right? And there were lots of travelers, Sodom and Gomorrah is on a trade route. There, there, all kinds of people who weren't actually residents of Sodom, Gomorrah, but they were in some way associated or attached, whether permanently or temporarily or whatever. So there could have been a lot of that. I mean, look what they did to the travelers that are going to show up pretty soon, right? They're on a trade route. Not, not like directly on it, but close. People are going to want to go there. Did everybody get treated that way, right? I mean, you'd think their reputation would have spread pretty fast. Don't stop there. But it, there could have been a lot, a lot of people crying out. And so, again, you have to kind of go, go outside the box a little bit to imagine, how did we get this great numerous outcry? Where was that all coming from? So, it's good. Good question. Sort of like what Isaac said, I guess. Uh, uh, does sin cry out to God uh, uh, to be punished? I mean, you know, he, like you yeah. said earlier, the wages of sin is death. So, yeah. the fact that there's sin there is that... Is that so egregious to God that he's saying, this, there's this cry that I have to answer? Right. Yeah. The numerous cry could be the sins themselves. I mean, Cain and Abel, what did the blood do? Cried out to God from the ground. What? I thought that was a metaphor. <laughs> well, it probably is, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have truth behind it, right? So, yeah. These are, these are great questions. This, when you're reading your Bible, when it says, what is it, Psalm 1? Meditate on your word all the day, right? This is what it's talking about. This is what we do, right? We're kind of having the, all right, meditation gathering, <laughs> and now you guys go home and do it, right? And it, this, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. This is a good way to read your Bible. All right, where are we at? 22? Is that David? Mm -hmm. All right. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. All right. All right. So the two men, I don't know, whatever, angels, they take off for Sodom. Now, one of the men, <laughs> it gets hard to talk about after a while. We're thinking that it's God. He's staying behind with Abraham. Okay. And and it says that Abraham still stood before the Lord. I mean, it just seems a little awkward, right? What, what, what are they talking about? These two, everybody's standing around and these two take off and Abraham and God are just kind of standing there. Nobody knows what to do, right? No, it's not that. Abraham, he is in a posture of reverence and worship. He's standing before the Lord, almost like, it's like, examine me, evaluate me, see me, right? That's what Abraham's doing. That's why God isn't leaving also, because there's real interaction taking place here, right? Um, let's see, Abraham, uh, it, well, it's like he's lingering, uh, but notice even though we might feel the awkwardness of it, 
right? Like I joked about before. Notice how God is just patient through it. Abraham stands before him. I, whether it's I need to talk to you or I'm waiting for a command or whatever it was that was going on, we'll see in a second. But God just waits patiently. I know I've got an appointment in Sodom, but it's cool. I'll wait. What do you got, Abraham? What's going on, right? It's a, it's a, a cool picture. We're seeing things of God. And when we see that, what should we be thinking? God's demonstrating something that I should be. I need to pay attention to this. When someone is requiring my attention, though I have plans, I got things to do, we need to be patient with them in that, right? Now, I know some people, they're just time wasters and whatever. I get it. And so, you know, you find good, merciful, kindly sort of ways to, to, to finish whatever's going on. But God is patient for whatever's going on in Abraham, giving him time, space, for whatever Abraham wants. It's a cool thing to see. All right. 23. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Oh, boy. This. I love this. So finally, Abraham, he draws near to God. Do you see that? Do you remember what I told you the purpose of the temple was? The tabernacle? It's to draw near to God. Very interesting point. But he's about to question God's judgment, God's behavior, right? Would you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Just, is that bold? Come on. But notice, think about this for a second. I don't know, maybe it's a a big boss, or maybe it's the pastor, or somebody important in your life, someone maybe with authority or standing or whatever it might be, and you have to actually go question them on something, something that has to do with their integrity, their character, right? Who they are. Is your instinct to move in a little closer? Hey, the heck's wrong with you? What do you think you're doing, right? Or is your instinct to kind of, you know, lean back a little bit? Hey, I got to talk to you about something. Might be kind of hard to hear, right? Abraham leans in. He gets closer to God in the story, right? And he questions his character. Are you really going to wipe out Righteous with the wicked? Are you really going to do that? Right? But God had just opened up, I think, this line of questioning. And let's say, and actually now I am thinking that he said the first part out loud too. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. Command his children and household to keep the way of the Lord in right- doing righteousness and justice. I think Abraham's trying to figure out what righteousness and justice is as well. And, and I think, yeah, sure. you know, God is opening that door for Abraham to step through yeah. by 
he didn't have to do any of this. Abraham's not questioning it after the fact either. Right. right? He's not saying, right. why did you do that? You shouldn't right. have done that. Right. He's searching for understanding and then probably sees that, hey, I can get this down to 10. Uh, but <laughs> I, I see it as Abraham looking for understanding yeah. as well. I guess he does try to save the whole city for the sake of the 50, but... Yeah. No, that's but, it's but I think a great he, point. He knows what God was doing when he was thinking out loud. Or, yeah, yeah. God could have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and just done it. But as you, he lingered you patiently... I wonder, I don't consider this a test, but he wanted to see Abraham's reaction yeah. for the people. I mean, if there are any righteous down there, would you destroy all of them? Because he's still, despite what's happened, laboring on their, going to bat for him for life. Right. Better term. That is such a great point. How many tests did we say there were for Abraham? Ten. Ten. This is not in that list. Traditionally, but maybe it ought to be. That's a really good test, right? Oh, I just wonder. Yeah, it's a great question. Great question. And you guys, you're making this, I mean, it's like a spotlight on this thing. We're talking about a story that's happening with Abraham, between Abraham and God, right? And we talked about, yeah, but maybe Abraham's really trying to figure out what righteousness is. Or maybe, maybe this, right? Why is all of this written down? Yeah. It's for you while you're reading it so that you can figure out what righteousness and justice is. So that you, right? And all of these questions, this is trying to answer it for you. Maybe Abraham too. I'm not denying any of that, the, you know, the realities of it. But it's for us coming along behind, seeing this and going, man, I'm going to get a lesson right here, right now about God. What exactly is his nature? What is his character? Right? And we're going to, that's what this story is about. It's so good. I love this. So, all right. Um, Abraham draws closer. He's questioning God's judgment behavior. Uh, it's extremely bold. We talked about that. But it's also, why would you be that bold? Because he also trusts, right? He, he trusts that this God is righteous and just, and that if Abraham questions it, he's either going to get his question answered, right? Or he's going to uh, gain some understanding about what righteousness and justice truly is, or, and I think we need to add this to the list of possibilities, God might relent. So this is very different from saying that God is somehow going to change his character. He's not going to do that. But God can change his mind. Nineveh. I'm going to destroy them all. Oh, they repented? All right, you can stay. Well, did he change his character? No, but he did change his mind. God can do that right? It's okay. When we get to Moses, oh my gosh, God's going to change his mind a lot, okay? And it's cool. It's a good thing. Um, no one has explicitly said so far in the text what's actually going to be done. It just keeps talking about it in generic terms. 
Should I let him know what we're about to do? You know, there's grave sin, numerous outcry. What should I? But nobody's explicitly said, I'm going to destroy the city, right? But Abraham said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Was there conversation we missed? Maybe. Does Abraham just guessing? Maybe. I don't know. But he's making the assumption, it's the way it looks to us, but he was right. Um, was Abraham guessing correctly? Well, we're going to find out that he was. Notice that the assumption, oh, this is also good. What's the assumption here? Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Okay, so out of those two things, which one of those is wrong? Sweeping away the righteous would be the wrong thing to do, right? So this goes back to just like with Noah, okay? And this relates to your New Testament. It says like two will be grinding at mill, two will be sleeping in a bed, somebody's going to be left. And of course, dispensationalism and, and whatever else is going to tell you there's a rapture and that, oh, the righteous get swept away to heaven and all the wicked remain on earth to face all this bad stuff except that it's exactly backwards. Who was taken away in judgment in the Noah story? The wicked. The righteous stayed behind in the ark. Who is being swept away in judgment? It's the wicked. Abraham's complaining that the righteous might be swept away with them. They're supposed to be left behind, if you want to say it that way, right? You are taken in judgment, not taken in righteousness. The righteous, our inheritance is creation. It's going to be a new one at the big ending, but our inheritance isn't in heaven. It's here. God comes here at the end of the story. That's the big finish. God's dwelling place is with man. Ta-ta! <laughs> right? That's a big deal. So you see it again. It's a consistent theme. The the wicked are taken in judgment. The righteous remain behind. We think of it backwards often. All right. Abraham's questioning God's actions. He's assuming that there are at least some righteous in Sodom. And I think we have to imagine that he's thinking of Lot because that's where Lot's living, right? Um, he's basically saying, look, if you do this, this is going against your character, who I know you to be or possibly who... I'm expecting you to be or assuming you to be or whatever. So maybe there's more of that element of, okay, who are you really? Because I think you're this, but if you're going to do this thing over here, I need to reevaluate who you are. But God is going to show himself to be exactly who Abraham expects him to be, wants him to be, right? We'll see that. All right. That's just, I don't know, I love that. It's so good. Where are we at? 24 and 25. Are we on Terry or Kim? Where are we at? Kim. Kim. Uh, Preadventure, there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the, as the wicked that be far from thee, shall not judge of all the earth do right. All right. Pretty tough reading, huh? Yeah. yeah. This is classic. So 
Abraham starts. Imagine there's 50 righteous in the city. Are you going to sweep them away? You're not going to spare for 50 righteous, right? Far be it from you to do such a thing. That's not right. That's not, that's not what a God does. However much I've gotten to know you over the past, however long it's been, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, this is not you. This isn't right. You can't put the righteous to death with the wicked. That means that the righteous fare the same as the wicked. We get the same recompense. We get the same result. That ain't right. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Hey, God, what if there's 50 righteous there? This is going to make you unjust. That's what he's saying. He's trying to be nice about it because, you know, he's talking to God and everything. But if you do this, you are unjust. That's a big deal. That's tough to say. So Abraham's no longer hinting. Let's say it that way. He's outright questioning the plan to wipe away the city and its wicked when there are or may be some righteous in it. His concern, and I'm going to say this, Right here it says, suppose there are 50 within the city, will you sweep away the place? Okay? Now you could look at that and you can go, man, Abraham cares about the city. Right? And he does, but there's a more important thing that he cares about, and that is the righteous. He keeps talking about the city, and I don't want to diminish that like, Oh, no, don't forget about that. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. He's, he's including that. But just know that the, the most important thing, and you're going to see it in the text, is that he's concerned about the righteous. He doesn't seem to be concerned about the wicked at all, right? Which, I don't know how much we should learn from that, but, you know, just notice it's a thing. Uh, his concern is for the righteous, specifically that they must be treated differently than the wicked. Okay? That's Abraham's concern. You read that in there. You can't. You can't do it, God. You can't treat the wicked and the righteous the same way. It's like it's violating all justice. Right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, God's character and reputation as the judge of all the earth is going to be on display here, right? For, for everyone to see what's going on. This, and you've got to, if you've read it at all, you've got to be thinking about Moses. Come on, you just took him out of Egypt. Everybody's going to look and say you took him out of there just to destroy him in the desert. Eek, that is a bad look, isn't it? Right? bad reputation. Same thing. You can't do this. You can't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Everyone will know, right? So here's a fact. Oh, wait, is it Dwight Schrute from the office? Fact. If the righteous are put to death with the wicked, that is unjust. So if you truly are the judge of all the earth, you must do justice. It's a simple, logic, logical thing, and he's right. Abraham's 100% right. 
You can't do that, God. You can't. But, verse 26, Mike. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Okay. So here it is. Abraham's calling him on it. You can't do this. Of course, I mean, again, think of the patience of God. He already knows everything. I mean, in the story, he's going to go down and verify, right? But we know that he knows. And yet he's like, you know what? You're right. If there are 50, I'll spare the whole place. He knows he's not going to spare the place. He knows there aren't 50. But he's acknowledging that Abraham is being right. He's being just in his request or his critique of God or you know, whatever you want to call it, right? He's being just. So um, God acknowledges Abraham's righteous stance and he agrees with it. He agrees to spare the entire city for the sake of the righteous within it. Okay, at this point, if there's 50. But now I wrote this down. Forget the story's details for a second. Uh, what are we learning about the nature of God? He is worthy of our what word do you think I'm going to say now? Praise, praise. Yeah. Ah, yes. That's not what I'm going to say. He is worthy of our fear. Why the heck would I use that word? Because I'm going to say it again. I'll probably say it 50 more times. The fear of the Lord is the simple knowledge, the understanding that He punishes sin and rewards righteousness. That is the foundational understanding of the fear of the Lord. If you can get that right at the beginning, he punishes sin, he rewards righteousness. If you accept that, that is the fear of the Lord, and it is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot truly obtain wisdom, godly wisdom, if you do not have fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord is knowing. Now, he's he's going to punish sin. And he's going to reward righteousness. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So that, it, it's important to see that in the story. And, and this is what, look at what Abraham's doing. He, he is trying to make God clearly, clearly, clearly define the difference between righteous and wicked. You punish the wicked, you can't punish the righteous. You've got to treat them differently. You've got to do it or you're not a just judge of all the earth. We are learning some stuff about God in this story. It's so good. So, all right. Verse, uh, where are we at? 27. John? Then Abraham spoke up again. Now I have been told so bold as to speak to the Lord through I am nothing but dust and ashes. Okay. So here we see Abraham. Um, it's, it's like our, our explicit example in the text of Abraham. He's, he's trying to be humble. He's trying to be reverent in this conversation. 
And he's going to continue to do it. I mean, when you were reading it, I'm guessing at some point you were going, wow, this seems so wordy. Why does he have to go so slowly through the numbers? You know, whatever. I get it. But here's Abraham. He's trying to go, listen, God, I, I know I'm being bold here, but I'm, I'm trying to be as humble as I can. Please don't get upset. Please don't lose your patience. But what about this? But what about this? But what, right? He does all that. But I want you to, I want you to notice this. I'm going to use the lingo from the ESV here, just so you can understand. It says, uh, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes. Okay? I want you to notice that the word but only has one T. Okay? Abraham is not calling himself but dust. He's simply saying that he is but dust. Do you see the difference? Huh? It's important. If you're going to use that on your kids, I just yes. know it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am butt dust. <laughs> All right. So um, that's a really good one. You know what? I'm going to zip through these next ones because I think we can finish this up today. And you guys are going to be shocked and I'm shocked and I'm going to win some sort of award. So anyway, verse 28. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. God does math. Okay? Uh, so he's, uh, the negotiation continues. What if there's 50, only 45? God acknowledges and agrees. 29, again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. A little more negotiating, a little more agreeing. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. A little more humility, a little more negotiating, a little more agreeing. He says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. A little more humility, a little more negotiating, a little more agreeing. Then he says, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. At least he's telling the truth. Suppose 10 are found there, and he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. A little more humility, a little more negotiating, a little more agreeing. And then we get down to verse 33, where we end for today. Uh, I'll just go ahead and read that too. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So the negotiation is over. God's going to go about his business, and Abraham's going to go back to his tent. So here's the question. Why did he stop at 10? I think God was letting him understand how bad it was. I, 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 it's funny to imagine God, you know, sort of like, yeah, I'll do it for 50. Sure. Like he makes it too easy for Abraham to negotiate. Yeah. And so Abraham, by the time he gets to 20 or 10, he understands, I'm not going to win this. I'm not saving the city. You know, unless I get down to maybe one. Yeah. Uh, so why didn't, he, why didn't he go to one? He probably felt he was wearing his wealth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. got six <laughs> questions in a row. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. 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 Reached his limit. This is the most speaking to God that Abraham has done up to this point. Actually, can't remember. It may, may be the most speaking to God that, he's, that he does in the whole Bible, right? 
It's amazing, amazing. But still, there's that question, why do you stop at 10? That's a weird thing. But I think we're going to find the answer as we continue, okay? Um, spoiler alert, maybe, you know what, I'll tell you this much. There weren't 10, right? You know this, the city gets destroyed. Now, one could think that Abraham's entire conversation was a waste of time. We, we just read all that in the Bible. It's half of a chapter in Genesis on this little negotiation that was fruitless. God destroyed the city anyway. There weren't 10 in there, right? But I think you'd miss a little bit of the point. As far as the storytelling goes, you got to admit there's a little bit of masterful tension creation, right? I mean, if you'd never read this before, you're going, well, what's going to happen? I mean, were there 10 or not, right? It's a great, memorable story. However, it's through this story, this conversation and what follows that we see even more clearly who God really is. And that's an important part of the story. He didn't find 10. We know this. So he destroyed the city anyway. We know this. And it makes it look like the whole conversation was a waste. However, God honored Abraham's real intention. He took Lot and his family out of harm's way before he destroyed the city. He saved the only righteous within the city. He didn't save the city. He let that go. But Abraham's real concern was for the righteous. No, you can't treat the righteous and the wicked the same. And God didn't. He saved him. Now, you may argue whether Lot was righteous or not. I get it. That's a whole nother story. But your Bible, for whatever reason, considers Lot righteous. Right? I think it's Peter who refers to him as righteous Lot or something. Right? It's very strange. But God honors Abraham. God honors the conversation. He does it all. Even though he destroys the city, he saves the righteous. And that's another indication that the most important thing in the story isn't the city, it's the righteous. So we did that. What else we got here? Uh, oh, that's it. So that's all I got. We finished chapter 18, even though you didn't think I could do it. And we didn't even do bad on time. Well, we didn't do great, but we didn't do bad. So what do you got? Thoughts on all that? So what, it, it sounds like Abraham sounds like he's annoying God and he's afraid he's going to get angry, but you know, God doesn't like destroying mankind, you know, right? He's, he's dealing with it too, that he has to do it. Right. You know? Yeah. But my one, my other question is, uh, so how many, did they ever say how many people there, a total of, I mean, in this city never said, no, I don't think the text literally calls no, out the numbers. The numbers. No, no. and if I go look it up, yeah. I'm going to get a, a variety of numbers oh, okay. that goes from here to here. So I didn't know if it was, yeah. you know, 10,000, you know, what, I don't know. Yeah. 5,000 or, yeah. it never. It never I, I, would, I would bet you that it would be measured in thousands. I think that is a good guess on your part. And remember, it wasn't long ago that Abraham went and, saved from the kings and all that. One of the things that they had done was come down and messed with Sodom and Gomorrah. So they had a king, right? They, I mean, it was, 
it was something substantial for the day. So that, that's about all I can tell you on that. Anybody else? Abraham doesn't bring that up at all. He undoubtedly lost men to save the king of Sodom. Oh, right. 20 years ago. Yeah. And he doesn't, that's not part of his negotiation is, you know, I did all this. Which right. is, is another sort of, or would have been a parallel to Moses. Yeah. Like, you let me rescue the king of Sodom, now you're going to destroy it. Yeah. But he, he seems to understand the wickedness that's there. Yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. He doesn't even mention Lot. Yeah. At all. Yeah. I have family there, God. Come on, it's my nephew. I know you told me to come without, leave all of my family, and I brought him, and that was a mistake that I made in the past, but come on. You're going to kill him? Really? Yeah, that's why he doesn't go down to one, because he doesn't want to know that Lot's not right. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe Abram, Abraham really questions that himself. Man, he's my nephew, but he's off on his own, and he was supposed to be, you know, living out, and now he's in the city. What the heck? What's going on? You know? Anybody else? I suppose Gomorrah wasn't even worth mentioning. Is that? I, you know, I've, uh, that is a really good question. What are you going to say? Oh, I was just wondering, like, between the conversation or the conversation between Abraham and, and God, uh, that Gomorrah was just so far out that uh, it wasn't worth talking about. Yeah, it just kind of appears out of nowhere when things get destroyed. It's thrown in there too or, you know, something, whatever. The weird thing is they, they were, I don't know if it's fair to call them twin cities, you know, but they were pretty close yeah. distance-wise. Um, and yeah, I, I wonder if it wasn't common even in the day, or maybe the day they were writing about this, or whatever you want to call it, where, yeah, we're not going to say Sodom and Gomorrah over and over in the text. We're just going to say Sodom because everybody knows what we're talking about. Maybe. Um, they end up getting included, so they have to be important enough for that, right? So, yeah, that is a, a weird thing about the text that I forgot to address at all. It, they're definitely in the picture here. And, and I think it would even be better when we're reading the story, especially in hindsight, now that you know the fact that it's included, every time you see Sodom, to be thinking in your mind, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, it's probably better, but... I found one too, that you alluded to it early on, the three men. Uh, while there's no general consensus, the three men, angelic, everybody seems in agreement that God was one of the three. Mm -hmm. But I found a Jewish professor that actually alluded that this is evidence in the Torah of the Trinity. Oh. This passage. Oh, that's kind of a cool thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's still, that, that whole question, it just bothers me to no end because we think of, well, when did God incarnate as human? Well, that was Jesus, right? And this story keeps mixing men and angels and God and, I mean, did God somehow, was he incarnate at this point? You know, I, I really don't think it's reasonable in any way to think of it as Jesus's first appearance, right? I don't think that's a good connection, but did God somehow take on flesh? I don't know. It's, it's a weird question, but yeah, interesting that a Jewish professor, he must've been messianic. 
<laughs> but that's okay. I, I, I dig that. What else? Anybody? In response to the outcry of the wickedness of Sodom, God came down, or the Lord came down, but he didn't go down to see it uh, personally, did he? His two angel servants went into the... Oh, I see. Yeah, the text doesn't tell us that God actually did what he said he was going to do, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. We'll, we'll probably be talking about that. Well, I don't know. But yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. So here's a question, though. Did God do what he said he was going to do? What do you think? Philip? I'm sure he, he saw from a distance. And uh, maybe he just could not stand to expose himself to the wickedness yeah. of Sodom. Yeah. So he kept his distance. Yeah, maybe that's, yeah. Anybody else? What do you think? Other two could have just called him up. So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he saw through their eyes. Pretty yeah. bad down here. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else? I think even on a human level, it's pretty understandable that a king sends his two messengers they speak for him, which we've mm -hmm. talked about with with angels. So yeah. I think I think we're good to let God off the hook on this one. Yeah, I, I think, and he also he still came down. He talked about the city. He met with Abraham. Abraham obviously all but confirmed, you know, the level of the outcry, and then yeah. and then his his angels went into it. So I think so. Yeah. Let's see, God went His way. That doesn't necessarily mean that He. Yeah didn't go to Sodom either. Right. That's what I was just going to point out. What does it mean when the text says that God went His way? Did He go and see for Himself? See, obviously we can't answer the question. I'm not, hopefully you guys understand, I'm never the guy that's going, I know the answers. I'm bringing up all the questions, right? I'm trying to help us find consistent ways to look at things so that we can better find the answers. But I don't know everything. Sometimes I think I don't know anything. But I feel like I know this. God does what he says he's going to do. If he said that he came down to check for himself and he was going to see, and if they weren't as bad as he had heard, he would know he did that. Just because the text doesn't say, and then God went and looked, and guess what? It was as bad as it said. Just because it doesn't say that doesn't mean he didn't do it. Right? Of course, if it doesn't say it, it doesn't mean that he did. But like Abraham, if you're the God that I think that you are, if you're who I've developed this picture of in my head, of who God is, he did that. He definitely did it. But it's a great question. And, I, you know, what is the answer? I don't know. So... Anybody else? You know, to me, both Abraham and God knew from the beginning that there wasn't going to be ten righteous. <laughs> Probably, yeah. You know, but he was wanting to hear it from God himself. Yeah, yeah. 
I think you're absolutely right, and I'm going to say it one more time. And who else is this for? Us. Yeah. Did we know that there were 50 righteous? But we're learning about the nature of God, who He is. I promised, even if there were 10, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I found one. I'll take him and his family. Another example of grace. It never tells us that anything about the family that they were deserving just talks about Lot and his family was saved because of him. That theme it, and, and its ultimate fruition is in Jesus. He merited favor, and it's through his favor that we are saved, right? It's a great image. Anybody else? Did you think that you could learn so much about God from this wordy, irritating negotiation between Abraham and God, right? It's probably dreading this part of this. St- oh man, we're going to spend all day talking about that negotiation. 50, 45, 40. It's good stuff, right? It's good stuff. All right. I'll hit the button so you guys feel comfortable getting out of your chair.